0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations, I'm Will Germain. Social stigma can take on many forms. It may be an unpleasant remark, a strange look, or even the refusal of employment. Today we'll try to understand the phenomena of stigma by talking with Tina Mashey. She's president of the National Organization of Forensic Social Work and a professor at the Fordham University Graduate School of Social Service. All right, so Tina, can you tell me about your research that is pertinent to social stigma?
1: Sure. um also, uh, in my capacity at Fordham University, I'm the founder and director of the B.D. Evidence Project, and that's a uh, project that actually focuses on oppression and stigma related with uh, uh, being a member of an oppressed
0: group. And now, I read that you're doing some work with, um, with juveniles and trying to figure out how trauma has affected them and led to violence and how that can lead them to be stigmatized in many ways. Obviously, not every young male violent offender has been traumatized and not every traumatized young male becomes violent. How do you quantify with data something like that? Isn't it so? Isn't it broad? Is it hard to put a number on that sort of connection?
1: Yes. If you're talking about um, how do we know the exact number, it depends on, first of all, how trauma is defined, uh, which is it could be a victim or witness of violence. I have a broader definition that also includes other kinds of uh, stressful life events, such as moving to a new home, losing a loved one, which is common among juveniles. And that work that I uh, do with juveniles, I've extended to look at uh, older adults. So it's really the impact of life course trauma on uh, physical, mental health and criminal offending
0: uh, outcomes. So sort of to backtrack here and maybe get to like a couple fundamentals of stigma. Do we have like a definition of stigma?
1: A dictionary definition uh, is um, a mark of disgrace or infamy, a stain or reproach as of on one's reputation. And so if you think of it as a blemish um, that an individual is seen to have worn, and, and think of it that it's also socially constructed in that When we're thinking about social stigma, we're talking about there's an individual and another person perceiving that individual um, as having or not having a stigma.
0: Now, are there theories, either sociological, psychological, or maybe even biological theories, for why stigmas exist and what function they serve in a society?
1: I think that the main... uh, theory that comes out to me is, is labeling theory, which would be uh, couched within a social science theory, is that we label people and then therefore treat them uh, a particular way because of that. And I think there's also oppression theory, which is another important piece, uh, because within stigma there is an oppressive aspect about it, and there's the dominant versus subordinate groups. Uh, and the strategy is for the dominant group, which in um, traditional oppression theory is the dominant groups are awarded first-class citizenship. So therefore, uh, in our contemporary culture, being white, Anglo-Saxon, adult, heterosexual, upper-class or bourgeois, male, healthy and able-bodied, um, it, those that's considered the norm. Anything that deviates from that? is an example of a subordinate or second class citizen that is subject to stigma, prejudice, discrimination.
0: Um, What was your goal in studying how childhood traumas impact a young person's chances of engaging in criminal behavior?
1: You know, my uh, interest in uh, uh, trauma and, and maltreatment began when I was a, a master's student at Rutgers University. Mm-hmm. What intrigued me about it is that I just didn't quite understand um, in, when we're thinking about family violence how people who are family or love one another would go to that extent to um, hurt another individual, physically, mentally, uh, psychologically, emotionally, Um, and then I Saw that there were potential there's risk factors if you come from a lower income type of neighborhood, um, so on and so forth that that put a, a child at risk but there 's also consequences and one of the consequences is is delinquency and When I finished my msw, I ended up uh, working within a juvenile correctional system um, and most of the trauma that they in the literature at the time was really looking at whether you 're a victim of either sexual assault. Physical assault or neglect, and when I worked in the juvenile detention, is that I realized that many of the youth that were there because they had obviously been charged with a delinquent offense, uh, some of them had you know were victims of of violence, but there was there's also a a whole group that were witnessing violence, and the amount of um, other. Types of stressful life events, such as I was struck by the fact that how many had experienced loss at an early age, and not just just a loss, like a death or a loss, but that um, they saw a friend shot to death on the street, they saw their mother murdered um, by their father, and not just one event but just an accumulation of events, and that possibly that what we were describing as delinquent behavior might have been more of a um, mental health reaction like oppositional defiance, untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so I went on to get my doctorate to really begin to study and tease out those effects um, of the consequences, what is delinquency. And I did find and um, replicated throughout my body of research is that um, that there are both individual level factors, especially emotional mechanism, um, negative affect and form of anger that could increase the risk. Of um, juvenile delinquency, so that might distinguish how you respond to a trauma that traumatized youth who um, ends up committing a violent offense versus those that were resilient to the adverse effects. Their their actual reaction to it. There's also social environmental factors that could um, come into play. We get exposed to a lot of delinquent peers that taught you, um, you know, delinquency that led on to it.
0: Um, I was just reading that. You use music uh, drum circles specifically to empower some of these kids who have been who have the stigma of being juvenile delinquents. How did you come up with the idea of using music to influence behavior.
1: Well, I have to say that from when I was a teen and and going through, you know, my Teen ink stage, uh, that music was always an important uh, reservoir and and source of resilience for me. So that that was something important to my uh, personal development. I also, uh, before becoming involved in social work, uh, was a professional musician, and I have, you know, independent records and, um, you know, multiple songs that are still available, actually. Wow. so uh, it 's always been an important aspect of my development, and when I was really looking to further my professional education, uh, I always had using the use of creative arts as a mechanism of which I wanted to use to work with other people because it was useful. I found it useful for me. Uh, the reason why I really got into drumming uh, is that one that I love drumming and it 's a group activity in that. I also use it in education with social work students who are also in these high-stress occupations. And what's useful about it is that if there's a level of stress, there's something about drumming that helps persons achieve a sense of entrainment or something where they feel relaxed but energized at the same time. So they're, like, centered, and it's the best feeling. Uh, And I use this in class as well as within, uh, you know, with clients – And they often report at the beginning that they feel really stressed or really tired. And at the end of a 45-minute drumming session, they report both being relaxed and energized. We have a publication coming out soon documenting those findings. But also in the context of the group, there's a sense of community and connectedness where If people don't know each other well or don't trust each other well, such as especially say if you're in a juvenile justice setting where it's hard to trust, you know, who, who if you're living in a dorm as say a juvenile, because anything it's just not necessarily a safe place, or in a class where students don't know each other well, it really helps a bonding aspect um happen. so it's like social well-being as well as uh, psychological and social well-being it really taps at that using non-verbal techniques um that include sound use of hands um and uh, communicating and what i often tell um People, when I'm drumming, it's, it's like there's no right or wrong to drumming. I think a lot of times, arts have been taken out, out of the hands of people, and it's like only experts can play. And yes, they can play, but anyone can play. So, you know, The question becomes how well. Um, so it really puts the, the music back into the hands of the people. And if you actually look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 27 says that everyone has the rights to arts and culture and relaxation you know that's a universal given um, right for everyone to express and i think when thinking about offender populations the use of self expression in a constructive way whether it be to process uh in narrative form um you know writing about their crime and, and uh, coming to terms um, and taking accountability for it, or learning self-expression in a productive way, as opposed to, say, with a juvenile that might be trying to express something, but they're doing it unproductively uh, through engaging in a delinquent act.
0: Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know from my own experience in drum circles, I, um, <laughs> I you know, might start the... the uh, the session so to speak feel you know feeling a little insecure and maybe I don't know everyone there so well and then be drumming allows me to be silly it allows me to make mistakes especially because I know right. I'm, I'm not a musician and then and then I feel like I can be my it it's just such a a bonding experience because everyone there's because there is no right or wrong answer and and nobody really is any better than anybody else.
1: Yeah, exactly because the group holds the rhythm. So wherever the, and and I always say wherever that rhythm falls, I mean you could say it's wrong, but we could just say it's a syncopation. <laughs> um, so so everything fits uh, you know, um, within the context, and the the whole group will always hold it together. And if someone stops for a moment, it's they, they didn't do anything wrong. They're just coming back in, and actually, it might create an interesting sound where you, it, where a person might begin to repeat. Okay, let me just play you know a few measures and then drop out for a few, then come back in, and, and so the use of dynamics um, it becomes creative as opposed to uh, restrictive and formulaic.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm your host, Will Germain, discussing social stigma, what they are, what function they serve, and the effects they can have on people with Fordham professor and president of the National Organization of Forensic Social Work, Tina Mashey. Stigmas definitely change over time. I think a couple examples of this in, uh, in this country might be, um, you know, maybe 60, 70 years ago, a, uh, a working woman may have been stigmatized for not staying at home and now i think in some cases um that stigma has almost um switched where some women might feel stigmatized for staying at home um so how do stigmas change if at all how do they go through that process is it uh what's the process yeah
1: i would say that there is a cultural norms change over time and they could vary by geographic location because we're thinking about what's a norm in America versus another country that might be very different so it there there's that term the context which would be historical time how things change over time uh, but also the location in which this change is or is not occurring. Those are two things to take into account. And I think overall, if you think about what is the dominant view, um, current dominant view, um, and how does that person that we're looking at, uh, that we're saying is stigmatized, is being perceived by others. And I, I was also thinking about, it depends on who that person would be with. If that woman is in a support group with other working mothers or non-working mothers, their experience um, of themselves and their reflection via other people would be different than with those that are different than themselves.
0: Um, Interestingly enough, one uh, sort of progressive New York judge actually recently ruled that being gay is technically, legally, no longer a stigma. The, The case was where a a man filed a lawsuit against someone for damages because the person called him gay. And he said that this, that being called that hurt his relationships at home. So he sued the person, but the judge threw the lawsuit out saying being gay is no longer seen as negative. So therefore this person is allowed to call you that legally because it doesn't damage your character. So that's sort of an example of legally a, a stigma technically being ruled, at least in that in that judge's eyes, is not being a stigma anymore. When should laws, you know, kick in to help someone who may be suffering suffering from uh, consequences of a social stigma, if at all? Does does the I, legal system play a role in that?
1: Well, yes. I, it, ideally, um, the legal system does play a role, and that would be a, a, an example of a structural um, type of. Social structure, you know, um, and which is institutional, uh, the legal system in which um, protections can be awarded or uh, not rewarded. I believe that uh, vulnerable populations such as uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender persons should be protected uh, by law. I don't think, I th- and I think that in select locations they have more rights than other locations, like the Northeast might be better than other areas of the country where there's um, gay marriage. But I still think that there's a lot of uh, prejudice and discrimination that does occur um, for um, if people that are in GLBT populations. But even if there is a law, um, there is a bias of a particular judge that comes to the table with, they think that it's not an issue. Um, And I've had even experiences with, um, you know, colleagues going through child custody cases that uh, were in mediation in which uh, the individual, you know, in the couple in mediation over custody of a child, where uh, the mediator says there's no difference between gay and straight families, which in their view, it is not quite sure how much well-read they are in the literature um, at that point. But there are similarities, but there are some differences. And I think those differences need to be protected in court. And also honoring the subjective um, viewpoint of that person, if, if he felt that it did impact his family, he's the one that best knows that. Because I'm not sure the nature of what that was, but if he was disowned um, by his family or it created tension in their family, then, then there is something to be said for that. The, I don't know all the details of the case, and if it, you know, so I can't judge whether that deserved to go forward in the court. But I do think that there should be protections, and when those protections are there, they should be implemented. We have lots of laws that aren't necessarily enacted to protect um, uh, stigmatized groups.
0: Some of the most sort of present uh, social commentary I think happens sometimes, often in comedy clubs. Um, comedians uh, point out social stigmas. They make fun of someone's sexual identity, weight, uh, race, Um does comedy influence public attitudes about social stigmas
1: yeah, and I would say yes, it does, and that would be to me an example of the cultural transmission, and it could be for better or worse i mean if if a group is it continues to perpetuate a myth of um, if we talk about the dominant group as you know the, the, the main group mm-hmm. and then the um all other groups as the other if it if it continues to perpetuate that you are other than then the um myth that myth can continue to be perpetuated where they continue to be considered as having second class citizenship uh if the comedy in a way has a way of normalizing it where um Stigmatized groups can be seen as an equal but different, so there's different but less than or or different um yet equal um if we can get to that a middle ground of parody, and that comedy can help achieve that, um, I think that's good. And that, to me, that would be an example of using arts, which have been commonly used. Uh, we talked about using arts for um, individual change at the social change level. If comedy was used in that way, and if I think of um, comedians of different race, ethnicities, um, gay, lesbian, transgender comedians begin to normalize. This is part of culture. We are here and we are one. We're just different.
0: How do you get there to that middle ground where different does not equal less than? Um, is, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, you know, you can't legislate that kind of thing. Isn't it personal attitudes?
1: You know, and, that is, I, and that's an excellent point. First of all, the person that's experiencing the internalized oppression I could begin to resist these negative messages, the, you know, that's you have power over yourself. So if you're out there and you're feeling like you're stigmatized for one or more, because you can have multiple stigmatized identities, um, is to start saying that that these are not true messages about me. I am more than just these identities and this identity I embrace as opposed to reject. Um, if it's in interpersonal communication, you could just say, uh, you know, there could be um, respectful communication saying that i not, I really, you know, like give constructive feedback, you know, what you said about my personal identity, you know, it felt this way to me. Uh, and I would appreciate if you would um, reconsider that type of talk with me. Um, at the cultural level, it's the more that we have these divergent narratives such as hip-hop, um, which is coming from the uh, different uh, racial ethnic cultures, but I uh, traditionally associate it with that, with the uh, African-American culture, lesbian films, uh, you know, and different things that are on TV now. We see more and more diversity of families. So the more that it gets up to the cultural realm and the more that we advocate and and get groups to become you know, collective identities uh, to to. Um, Adopt collective identities like they did in the 60s with the civil rights movement and the feminist movement, uh, uh, where their people got together and said, Hey, we have something in common. And that ties in to me where almost drumming is a metaphor for that the collective power of, of sounds. So you get the collective power of similar groups saying, We've had enough, we're rejecting this identity and we're going to project a positive image of who we are internally and as a group. That's a powerful comment.
0: Um, so let me bounce some of the specific stigmas that my series focused on off you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a member of the group, the Log Cabin Republicans, he was. Um, he said, which is a, a group that, um, mm-hmm. it's a Republican group that works to try to include uh, gay and lesbian issues into mm-hmm. the Republican Party. And he said he feels more stigmatized by his gay friends for being a Republican than he does for, uh, than he does by Republicans for being gay. Um, you know, what are some of the sort of in I mean, can you sort of elaborate sort of break down that stigma for us?
1: Yeah. I, if there, if we think about there's an individual and their experience of their identity, and there's multiple aspects to, to their identity in this case, uh, this is a gay man a uh, politician I'm assuming he's a, uh,
0: he works for an advocacy group, so he's not a politician okay himself, okay, you know.
1: so he's an advocate who happens to have political beliefs that are republican um and and so there's that person. And then there's changing context in which he's involved in, in which the dominant group, when he's involved in Republican kinds of activities and where being gay is considered part of a subordinate and contentious issue within that uh, group. But actually within a lot of cabins, their group, they're accepting of it. So it's not so much of the other people that he's um, involved with um, have an issue with that they they seem to be accepting of that issue, and then he 's also a gay person, um, and in the context of the gay community, when he changes context where being gay is a common identity um, of which there 's nothing necessarily to argue you know they 're on equal stature uh, in this uh, sexual orientation identity, um, but when it comes to political beliefs, the dominant belief being you know democratic because that it seems as if the Democratic Party, in theory, are more open to advancing uh, gay issues. Um, and so we, even within minority groups, and that this isn't just with gay people, but most minority groups, there's still stigmas within that group. And that's what I think the most interesting thing is, is that even though you're an object of stigma, does not mean that you're not a projector of stigma. And that would be a pretty pretty tough identity to negotiate within, you know, if the dominant subculture, like the subculture has a dominant narrative, and and if yours varies, what does that mean? So that goes to show that even within uh, minority subculture groups, that there's even a lot of growth within it. And so not only are you working with the outward stigma, but it, that it's really important to really practice um, um, what we preach. And that's part of what my Be the Evidence Project does, is that we first have to deal with the oppression within ourselves. How do we oppress other people? And and our logo is Be the Evidence You Want to See in the World, uh, which is a takeoff on Gandhi's Be the Change You Want to See in the World. And so I think that's an important aspect, is that everyone, regardless of your identity, is really look at, how am I uh, projecting or stigmatizing or oppressing other people?
0: And what purpose does that serve for the gay community, um, even though they are perhaps a minority group themselves? Why are they, in this guy's view, stigmatizing him for holding that alternative um, political viewpoint? Is there? Is it, is it to bond the group? Is it to make them feel safe? Is it to know what it is they're fighting against?
1: Yeah, I think that there's a certain sense of, of being threatened by alternative views um, and or not working to the point of complete acceptance um, of that there's divergent views even within the group. It's, and I think it's a growth of any group. If you think about group dynamics, um, there's always a stage of conflict. And, and the gay movement is a fairly new movement, so working through these differences... Um, uh, you know, if they, they started out in a unity phase, is working through the differ- differences within that group. So it's just I would I would look at it as a process and a growing stage, uh, and and learning toler- tolerance from within and without. I think there's also something to be said with, with dom- the dominant. Uh, cultural group, which the heterosexual dominant group, is that it serves their purpose in that the longer uh, minority groups, stigmatized groups, remain divided, um, they still remain conquered. And so I think that's an important part of the healing uh, phase for, for the rainbow symbol of, you know, everyone's represented is that it includes Beliefs, and I think beliefs are different than you know. It's it's like their sexual orientation, you are, you aren't, and on what level of the continuum, and, and your other beliefs. So coming to terms with those.
0: Are there any new stigmas emerging? I mean, at one point, being divorced um, was quite a stigma, and now it seems everyone's everyone's parents are divorced, and it doesn't seem like it's such a big stigma anymore. Um, or being born to a parent who wasn't married—that used to be a stigma, maybe not so much anymore. Are there new stigmas emerging and are some old ones going away?
1: I would say the one that comes to me, I'm not necessarily don't know if it's new as for more and more awareness and advocacy around it is offender status, Um, especially um, individuals coming out of prison. My main area of work is looking at, you know, older people or the aging in the criminal justice system. And before that, People were not aware of this issue, even though since the 1980s there's been stricter sentencing policies that have ended up in what I call this human-made disaster of um, the over-incarceration of older adults in the criminal justice system, and, and I'm talking about 50 and older. Um, this was, has been going on for 30 years, and all of a sudden, with the work, work of advocacy groups such as Human Rights Watch, um, also Be the Evidence Project hosted an aging prisoner forum, there's much more awareness of this person called the aging prisoner. And if you think about it, if there's stigma against older adults that are frail individuals, this idea of conceptualizing them is also in offender, you know, as committing crimes, like capable individuals that could even go as far as to break the law.
0: Tina, we only have um, uh, about a couple minutes left, but if you could leave our listeners with one thought on social stigma, what would it be?
1: Self-awareness. Look inside yourself. Think about how you... Stigmatize yourself. What are you internalizing? And then also think about what are you projecting onto other people about who they are. Uh, and I encourage you to find out who you are, who you truly are, as embrace yourself as well as to find out who others are. Make that connection, that empathic connection, to connect with others and find out who they really are. It would be um, a, a so much more rewarding encounter with the others in your lives.
0: All right, Thank thanks so a much, lot, Will. Tina.
1: I enjoyed the, our conversation. Thanks,
0: me too. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye. My thanks to Fordham professor Tina Masci, who is also president of the National Organization of Forensic Social Work. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Will Germain.